the question, do you think you're better than me? Did you ever ask somebody that question? You think you're better than me? Here's something we might notice about human beings. We care who's better than who. It seems to really matter to us. Who's better than who? You know, in schooling, in the field of education of children, there's a whole area of research about pecking order in classrooms. Children. Nobody had to teach any of those children that when they gather with these 25 other children, they're going to figure out who's better than who. And you could ask any one child, you could go to one child and say, okay, what about that kid? And that, this child could tell you whether that kid is above them or below them in the order. Most likely. There, I'm sure there are exceptions. It seems to really matter to us. This whole concept of status. And we don't outgrow it. Do we? I think when somebody asks you the question, do you think you're better than me? We all say, oh, no. Because we all recognize that such thinking is wrong in some way. And sometimes when we say, no, no, I don't think I'm any better than you, we're thinking to ourselves, what, you think you're better than me? Status seems to really matter to us. We arrange our society according to it. Some sometimes in a relationship it just orders itself and nobody ever says anything or thinks anything or does anything, but there's an understanding. One of us is above the other in status. Almost all of our relationships probably could be described with some status description. In Ephesians, beginning in chapter 5, we are exhorted because of the gospel. Because the gospel is true. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, stepped down and became a man. So that in the person of Jesus, full divinity and full humanity reside somehow. And then the scripture says, finding himself as a man, he humbled himself 
among men, humbled himself, that just means he stepped down and he kept stepping down. And it says he humbled himself as a man, even to the point of death. You know, Jesus said this, nobody's taking my life from me. I am laying it down for the sake of my people. Well, so he humbled himself even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So among the possible ways to die, execution as a criminal, and not just a criminal, but one guilty of the crime of blasphemy against God, that is about the lowest way to die. And of course, the method of this death, crucifixion, is one of the worst ways to kill people people have ever come up with. And the reason it's one of the worst ways to kill people is because it utterly belittles the person. It is not just killing them, it is displaying them in complete humiliation. What sort of status does the criminal in the hangman's noose have? Least. Least. Because the gospel is true, well, it turns out that when Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross, his death accomplished our salvation. His death remitted the penalty of our sin. His death was in our place. And so his death lifts us. And so here in the book of Ephesians, we've seen because of the great love with which God loved us, he, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he has raised us together with Christ. So when God raised Christ from the dead, he raised you from the dead as well. So we are the great beneficiaries of his humiliation. And God, of course, in that very same text, goes on to highly exalt him and give him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee, both of these and both of yours, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so he has from, goes from least to greatest. Oh, he said, he, he preached that. He said, hey, if you want to be the greatest, make yourself the least. And then he said, and then he did what he said. He made himself the least, 
and was made the greatest. He gave this advice. He said, look, when you, as just a general principle in life, he said, look, when you go to a dinner, don't jump up the table, you know, because, oh, there's an order. There's an order at just about every table. There's an order. And of course, you know, some important person is seated at the head of the table and Jesus says, don't march up there and take that spot. Because when you do that, someone's going to come along and say, hey, that's not your spot. Move down. And he says, instead, what you should do is sit at the other end. Below your station. Humble yourself. And then someone's going to come along and say, hey, that's not your spot. Move up. So Jesus lived this principle for our salvation, and he preached this principle as a general practice of wisdom. And so in the middle of the book of Ephesians, we come to this text because the gospel is true. He says, don't walk like unwise people. Walk as wise. Walk as wise. And then he described with various terms. Whoops. And he described with various terms what that wisdom consisted of. And one of those terms was submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. In other words, when you meet someone, place yourself below them. And in this text, that is described as walking in wisdom. That is the smart thing to do. Besides being the good thing to do, it's also the wise thing to do. Oh, and it turns out, Wise and good are like completely overlapping categories. What Jesus did was good and wise when he humbled himself. Paul says because of what he has done, you have the opportunity to behave in the same manner of wisdom. Last time, oh, then, I'm sorry, then he goes into this list and he goes through the household of the typical household of the church at that time. And he says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. These are both ways of serving the other. Of putting yourself below in order to lift the other up. But because we're so worried about who's above who, We resist this whole idea. Because our thinking is upside down and we don't see humbling yourself as a path to exaltation like Jesus did. Well, anyway, so wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives. Wives submit to your husbands, husband loves your wives. A marriage 
should be a servant contest. A good husband thinks carefully about what is best for his wife and he will pay any price to obtain that. And what he's doing when he does that is demonstrating the greatness of Christ, which is the important thing. What he's doing is showing the glory of God in Christ who did that exact same thing. And every husband has the opportunity to show how great our Savior is in the way he treats his wife at the breakfast table. He gets her coffee. If you want to make it just super practical. If someone's going to sit on the sofa and say, bring me another beer, honey, it'll be the wife. If the husband is practicing this principle. Although, he might have to fight the wife on the way to the refrigerator if she's practicing this principle. Now, we humble ourselves to lift. Then he gets to kids. He says, children, obey your parents. It's, only, it's just right. And besides that, God has made you a promise. Kids who honor their parents do well. And then he says, fathers, serve your children. Don't be the source of unnecessary anger in the life of your children. Don't vent your anger because of somebody's bugging you on your children. Don't make your children try to do stuff without helping them figure out how to make it happen. Don't require something you don't provide for. Instead, bring them up in the training, the instruction, the nurture, the nutrition of the Lord. Disciple your kids, fathers. Serve your children. This is one more case of submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Then last time we talked about bond servants. Slaves really is the word. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Goes on to say, as slaves of Christ. Recognize that though you're working for this guy, you're really working for Christ. And so you don't want to serve in a way that just does the minimum and dresses it up so it'll be acceptable. You want to be the sort of person that serves sincerely, that has the interest of the person you're working for in mind, and is genuine in serving those interests. Just like you would if that was Jesus you were working for. And then, we come to this 
sort of mind-boggling statement. Lords, he says, masters, he says. So now he's addressing the other end of that relationship. Lords, people who have people working for you, you might be in this category. These days, it seems like most of us are in both categories. We work for somebody and some people work for us. You don't have to progress too far in your career before there's people who kind of work for you, even if they don't really answer to you. There's people that you are the boss of, so to speak. Most of us, or a lot of us anyway, are in both of these categories. Here's what he says to the lords, the masters. Do the same. Do the same toward the people who work for you. So whatever instruction you received about how you should work for the people you work for, that same instruction applies in one way or another to the people who work for you. You how you deal with them. That is really kind of a puzzle. Well, so I just want to take the same outline and say, okay, well, let's think about it then. The first thing he said about slaves obey your masters was, as you would Christ. So, masters, bosses, Managers, whatever you call yourself. What if it was Jesus working for you? How would you treat him? You know, Jesus had jobs. <laughs> there were people actually in this category. Jesus worked for them. They might not have recognized who he really was, but okay. What if it if you've got people working for you, what if it was Jesus in that position you're the boss of? Well, he says, he uses these expressions with fear and trembling. If the Lord God Almighty was your employee, how would you address him? Hey, get over here and get this done. Or you're fired. Or we're going to dock your pay. Or blah, blah, blah. Probably not. With a sincere heart, he said. With actual loyalty, he said. Not with eye service, he said. Not putting on an act. Not as people pleasers, he said. Honest. Here's how I would summarize this. If you're talking about how you would boss Jesus, that's what we're talking about. How would you boss Jesus? I think it goes like this. You take care to consider the success of the one working for you and how you can help them succeed. You serve them. 
you help them succeed? How can you equip them to do well? How can you equip them to do... You know, this sounds a lot like the advice to fathers with regard to their children. Fathers, how can you equip your children for success in the Lord? And here he's saying a very similar thing to lords in regard to the people who work for them. You serve them to equip them for success in whatever it is you require from them. The next expression was as slaves of Christ. And here, it's the other way around. We want to ask the question like this, what if Jesus was in your position, how would he boss your people? How would Jesus behave in your position relative to the people who work for you? Here's an interesting way to think about this, I think. Why has the Lord put you in charge of those people? Now, I, when I ask that question, you might think, well, the Lord didn't put me in charge. I earned my position. Even if you earned it, the Lord put you wherever you are. The Lord made you the person who would have that position. So the question is, what if Jesus had your position? How would he behave toward the people who work for him? Or, to say it another way, why did he put you there? Why does he have you bossing these people? I think that's a very helpful thing to ask. How will you then behave if the gospel's true? And here's some things Jesus said. The Son of Man did not come to serve, I mean to be served. <laughs> it's important that you get this in the right order. The Son of Man, Jesus himself, did not come to be served, but to serve. And then he was having a little conversation with the disciples, and some of them were yakking about who was over who in the whole order of the, you know there was a pecking order among the disciples? They had it figured out and they were competing over it. James and John actually got their mother, this just amazes me every time, to go to Jesus and say, oh Jesus, please let my boys sit at your right and left hand in your kingdom. And Jesus, what Jesus said was, you have no idea what you're asking for. Will they drink the cup I will drink? She said, oh, sure. She had no idea. And then Jesus said, well, they will. No doubt about it. They will drink the cup that I drink. But who's at my right and left hand is not up to me. <laughs> so, uh, okay. This little fight. Uh, 
Jesus said after that conversation, He said, you know, you know how the Gentiles are. Their bosses are always bossing. People in authority, they lord it over people. In our context, we might say they use the threat of their position over people. And then he says, not us. We do not do it that way. Church, that is not how we do. It's as though he stood up and said, here among us, friends, disciples, no lording. Instead, if you want first place, you take last place. And then, of course, he proceeded to do just exactly that. Here we see this expression as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, literally from your soul, from your, of your own free will because of the love of God in Christ that you enjoy. You operate in your positions of authority as His servant, and so you take your position of authority as a place of service as a place, as an opportunity to meet the needs of other people, as an opportunity to put yourself beneath them in order to lift them. I know this is like crazy nonsense, but I also think, I think that because I'm a Gentile. And this is how us human beings are. We start, even before we start going to school, we start figuring out who's in charge of who. Who's above who. What's the order? And nobody is striving to be at the bottom of the order. Well, Jesus did. And He uses this expression when He's talking to the slaves. He uses this expression, serving with good will. And then he says to the master, do the same. Serve with goodwill. The authority that is exercised by Christians is called, Jesus calls upon us to exercise that authority in serving. As in, I make the sacrifice for your benefit. It's an expression of the love of God in Christ. And that is the point. The point is when you employ others, when people work for you, if you know the love of God in Christ, that relationship is an opportunity for you to put what you know about His love on display in the world because that is the thing we seek to glorify, just how well loved we are by God in Christ. Just like the husband is called upon to love his wife. Why? 
well, because she needs that. That's not really the reason, though that's also true. Not because she needs that, but because it puts Christ on display, and putting Christ on display is the point. And the way we put Christ on display is to demonstrate the love we've gotten from Him. So when I have authority, when I'm in a position of commanding others, I use that position of command to serve those people. That probably doesn't mean I stop commanding them because they might need some commanding. But I think about what really is beneficial to the person I'm leading. And I make the necessary sacrifices. Then finally he says, as to the Lord and not to men. Serve them as they serve. Encourage and equip them for effective work. Be a leading servant. Now, in this text, he starts with saying, okay, masters, you do the same. The same thing I ask the servants to do, you do the same. And that's what we've been talking about. We've just kind of flipped it to see how those same things might apply if you're in the position of the boss. But then he says something more. He says, he goes on from there, he says, letting go of the use of threats. And I think this is really where we get to Jesus' no lording rule. Let go of the use of threats. Now, I'm quite sure, if you think about it for a second, you can think of some situations where you really would not want to let go of the use of threats. Where it seems that the only thing that will straighten this clown out will be some threats. The only way that will get him to do the thing we're paying him to do might be the threat of stopping the payments. This is not the usual way of the world we're talking about here. But let go of the use of threats. In other words, as a believer, as a recipient of the release from the threat of God's wrath, I have the opportunity to demonstrate that release in these relationships. And so I can say, I don't need to threaten you. I will keep thinking. I will keep thinking about how I can serve you so that you can serve well. I'll just be honest, I'm not sure how practical that is. I'm, I'm pretty sure there are some situations where that's really not practical. 
because I know the love of Christ, I am free to be loving in just this way. Even when it's not that practical. Then he says, all of this is because you know something. All of this is because you know something. Your master and theirs is in heaven. And there's no favoritism with him. (laughs) So I think Christ has sort of moved through the course of this conversation. We started by asking, what if the person working for you was Jesus? Then how would you behave toward that person? And then we asked this question, what if Jesus was in your position How would he behave toward that person? And now we're noticing, oh, and by the way, there's a Lord in heaven. And both of you guys are working for him. And he is not impressed. When he sees his two servants, one of whom just happens to have some authority over the other one, he sees his two servants. And you serve him. And so does the guy who serves you, serving him. So one of the things I'm called upon to think about is how do I help the people who serve under me to serve me in a way that helps us all to serve Him. Here's the thing. You see this floor? I'm told it's one of the smoothest concrete floors in Bonaire. It was created by concrete smoothing experts. It's extremely flat. It's extremely flat. And when the Lord looks at us and all our little status distinctions, He sees something that looks like this extremely flat floor. In the eyes of the Lord, we all have equal status. You remember that text we read from Galatians? It actually said there's no masters and slaves. No men and women. Now, of course there's masters and slaves and there's men and women, but what he's talking about is there's no status distinction. There's no difference in the value of a human being before the living God based on these distinctions. So we have equal status in the Lord's eyes. In the book of Philemon, where Paul is sending a slave back to the master and writing an appeal to the 
master, Philemon, on behalf of the slave, Onesimus, he says this, Receive him back like you were receiving me. Not, no longer as a bondservant, no longer as a slave, but as a brother, and not just any brother, a beloved brother. A brother you actually miss. <laughs> Receive him like that. Now, that's about as close as you can get to Paul saying, do not continue to treat Onesimus as a slave. And here he says to lords, serve your slaves. Submit yourself to their needs. Here's the thing I've noticed. The gospel, the good news of God's grace in Christ, levels humanity in status. All our distinctions of status just flattened like those guys when they took that, whatever that thing is called, you know, that they run over the concrete to smooth it out. That is the effect of the gospel on our status distinctions. It just levels them. And now what we are called to do is engage in some kind of grand humility contest where we are struggling to get below one another, to be the one who exalts someone else instead of ourselves, to get down there where Jesus went because the best thing we could be is like Him. And sometimes I will say it like this, you know, if you're looking down on anyone, you're also looking down on Jesus because He is below everyone when He gives Himself a sacrifice for sin. You know, apart from Christ, our status is equally offensive before God. Some of us are probably worse sinners than others, but all of us are under God's judgment. All the same. Depraved, we call it apart from Christ. In Christ, however, our moral standing before God, here's, here's your moral standing before God. If you are in Christ, you ready? You're not ready. Your moral standing before God, if you are in Christ, is this. Perfect righteousness. God has imputed to you the very righteous life of Jesus Christ. Because in union with Him, when God looks at you, that's how He assesses the situation. Well, is my perfect righteousness above yours? 
Or if we wanted to look at the other end of the scale, is my depravity below yours? It's level from the perspective of heaven. And we have a Lord in heaven. Every person I meet, every person I meet, has been served by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, my Lord. When I run into you, I'm running into another person who has been served by him. You know, sometimes we bump into people and we think, oh, that person lost cause. There's certain categories of people, you know, homeless drug addict or whatever. I don't know what your categories are. And we think that person's beyond redemption. Jesus died for that person. So they're not actually beyond his reach. And actually, if I think about how far he had to reach to get me, well, it's pretty much exactly the same distance. Every person I meet has been served by Him, my Lord and King. Therefore, everyone I meet is someone for me to serve. When Jesus said no lording, He wasn't messing around. In 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul says we, we've been transformed by our encounter with Christ. The love of Christ compels us. So, we don't see anyone like we used to. We see with the vision of Jesus submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. That's wise. That's wise. And it's, frankly, the only sensible way if the grace of God is real. If what Jesus did for us is real. Now, I know this is pretty challenging work. <laughs> In fact, I don't think I have the goods for this work to stop scratching my way up and start scratching my way down among people. So how... Do I engage this only abiding in Him? Only abiding in Him. Only because He did it for me. He reached down to me. He put Himself below me. He lifts me up. And I feel like I really need that gospel reality to infuse my heart if I'm ever going to start getting to this, to see the people around me served by Him, and so opportunities for me to display His grace, to serve them, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Father, 
seems like a tall order. Think about the lengths to which Jesus went to redeem us. Lord, help us work in us by the Spirit and the Word to bear this in mind, to take it to heart. Make us Your loving people in this way. In Jesus' name, Amen.